0: Well, we are now in our second week of our new series that we're starting, and uh, it is where we were studying the books of First and Second Peter, and last week we talked about the fact that God chose you, that God has a purpose for you, and no matter what anyone tells you, no matter what you might think about yourself, God has a plan and purpose for your life to use you to build his kingdom and to take the gospel to your neighbors and your co-workers and your families. Um, and so today we're going to be picking up right where we left off last week um, and we're going to be studying mainly First Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 13. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along uh, or you pull out your your phone or tablet or whatever to follow along if not, uh, it will be on the screen behind me but we are going to be reading First Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 13. He says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. This salvation was something even the prophets wondered or wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. So think clearly and exercise self-control. Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your word is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray that today it will cut through all of our assumptions, all of the things that we think about ourselves and think that you want to say that today Your word will pierce us directly to the heart that you will speak to us and we will walk out changed because we've heard your voice. We pray in Jesus' precious name, amen. So last week, one of the things that we said about this series of First and Second Peter is we have to remember the guy that's writing it, Simon Peter, disciple of Jesus. And we said that this guy was a guy who spent three years of his life with Jesus. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. He was in sort of Jesus' inner circle of friends, Peter, James, and John. And the kind of funny thing about this is that Peter is kind of, a little bit of a loose cannon. Peter always acts, Peter always thinks, Peter always always acts and says things a lot of times without thinking about it first. And it just kind of makes it interesting that he is one of Jesus' best friends. But when you look at Peter, it's one of those things where Peter's greatest strength was also kind of Peter's greatest weakness it was a weakness because you know sometimes he would say things like when he said to Jesus no 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 no, you can't go and die and Jesus said get behind me Satan or when Jesus was being being tried and a little girl is asking him aren't you with Jesus and he's cursing her um, the, the, sometimes he, he flew off the handle said things did things without really thinking about it first but but that was also sort of his greatest strength because Peter was a guy that jumped out of the boat when Jesus said yeah come on walk on water to me P- Peter was the same guy who jumped up and spoke the gospel to thousands of people a lot of which were people that were people that crucified Jesus Peter was one of the guys who stood up to the elders and the chief priests when they brought him in for preaching the gospel and said, look, I don't really care what you say. I'm going to preach the gospel. And he counted a joy even when he got beaten for it. Sometimes Peter was a little bit rash in things he said and how he acted, but sometimes Peter was also the most fearless. Sometimes Peter exemplified what it meant to have childlike faith and I think that's partly why Jesus liked him so much and it really goes all the way back to when Peter first met Jesus so in Matthew chapter 4 verses 18 through 20 it says one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the sea of Galilee he saw two brothers Simon also called Peter and Andrew throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living And Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Now, this is another case of Peter just kind of not not really thinking about it, just doing it. About Peter being fearless, being being a guy with childlike faith. Because it says that Peter just left his nets and followed Jesus, Jesus. Peter left his job, he left his job security, he left stability from having a regular income, he he left his life behind and followed Jesus. The problem is that so often we want to follow Jesus, but we really don't want to leave our nets, We want to follow Jesus, but we also want stability. We want to have plenty of money. We want to have a good house and a nice car and nice things. And we want to be popular and we want to be well-liked and we want to have the approval of other people and we want to seem like we're smart, capable people. We treasure these things in our lives. We treasure these things in our society. But as I read that passage in, in 1 Peter Peter said something in verse 4 when he said we have a priceless inheritance an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. He, He said that but it reminded me of something that Jesus said. And you know Peter was a guy that hung around for three years with Jesus. And, and anytime you hang out with somebody long enough, pretty soon you sort of start saying the same things, thinking the same way, acting the same way. And so as we look through First and 2 Peter, we, we saw it a little bit last week, that you're going to hear Peter saying the same things Jesus would say. And the longer that you and I spend time with Jesus in his word and in prayer, the more we're gonna sound like Jesus. The more that his spirit's gonna be able to speak in us the same things that he spoke when he was walking on earth as Jesus. So when Peter said we have an inheritance that is kept in heaven pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay, it reminded me of something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, in verses 19 to 21, when Jesus said, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths can eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal because wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. How much of your time and your energy and your finances and your thought and your worry is tied up with treasures that you're building here on earth? Where mods eat and rust destroys and thieves steal. How much of your time and energy and thought and worry is about things here on earth? On the other side of that, how much of your time, energy, finances, worry, and thought is tied up to building treasure in heaven by building God's kingdom? Seriously, I want you to think about that for a second. Take just a minute. Ask God. God, even right now, just take a second and pray. Ask God, God, how much of my time... Is spent building up treasures here on earth, and how much of my time is spent building up treasure in heaven? If you had to per- put a percentage on it, it would be 50 50, 80 20, 90 10. We spend so much of our time building treasure that in the course of human history will be, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, meaningless. Think about who we truly are. God, God says we're just dust. We, go, we start as dust, we end as dust. Think about all the treasures that we put our time and effort into that eventually are just going to Turn to dust, that in a few hundred years will be completely gone. So much of our time is just us. It, it, so much of it is dust, putting dust into dust. Jesus said, Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Is your heart here, or is your heart longing for heaven? Jesus said, You can't serve both masters. I mean, even think about church in America today. Most of the time, even church in America, even Christians aren't that much better. How do we measure success? We measure success by how many people we can get into our church building on Sunday. We measure success about what what the offering looks like and how much money we have to create programs and, and, and do things so we can hire more staff and have a nicer, bigger building. I'm not saying that's what we're all about here at Antioch, but the church in America, it's about people and it's about money in a lot of cases. That we've made success as a church our end goal. We want to be a successful church. But what does that mean? What does that mean for the church in America today? Does it mean with, that we're growing with lots of people and lots of money? Because we believe that if we have 5,000 people in our church and a multi-million dollar budget that God is pleased with us? That if we have a a good speaker who can keep people's attention and and maybe make people laugh a little bit, that that when they walk out the door and they feel like they learned something and go, oh, that was a good sermon. Whether or not it does anything to actually change somebody's life. You know, if we have good worship that can make people feel like, I met God in worship today. that, that, That we're successful. But, who are we serving in those scenarios? If, if I walk out the door and say, I met God today in the worship and I learned something in, in the, the message, but it doesn't change my heart and life. Are we coming to church for ourselves or are we coming to church to glorify God and lift God up? I look around and I see churches being run more and more with a business model. Running a successful church is like running a successful business, but that's not how I see the book of Acts. I I see people praying and digging into the word and doing life together. It's not a business model, and I just Wonder when I look at the church in America today, where are we really trying to build our treasure? Are we trying to build our treasure here? Are we letting the things of man overrule the things of God because we're trying to achieve success and the treasures of men, even in church? How much time do we? spend planning and discussing and coming up with strategies and programs in the church? If, if you want to think percentages on, on how the church in America works, how, how much time do we spend planning, discussing, coming up with strategies and programs, and how much time do we spend together in worship and prayer and in God's presence, desperately seeking him and his word together? Because those are the things the early church did. And when you read the New Testament, the further they got from seeking his presence, you look at the churches in Revelation and what God has to say to them, the further they got from those things, the more that God was displeased with how they were. What kind of treasures are we seeking to build? The things of value look different to God. Look at what Peter says in First Peter in verse four and five. He says, we have a priceless inheritance. This possession, this possession given to us by our, our father, it's an inheritance that's being kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. So it must be pretty important, right? That if God thinks, oh, this is so good, this is so priceless, this is so wonderful, we're gonna keep it in heaven so nothing can touch it. it he says, through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you can receive, what? What, what, what is it? What, what? What is it that's so priceless? The treasure that God is giving us. He says it's, this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. What, what's the, the priceless inheritance that, that Peter says we get? What is it that's being kept in heaven for us? Salvation. Peter doesn't list a big list of, of treasure that we get when we go to heaven. That we get gold and silver and rubies and, and 72 virgins like, like, like Muslims. We, 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 we don't get extra blessings or health or money or things going good for us. Or, or not having to struggle through life that even a lot of Christians would say that we get. No, Peter says we get salvation. Salvation. That's it. Our inheritance is salvation, is being saved from our sin to an eternity with Jesus. But let me ask this question. If the only treasure you receive when you get to heaven is the fact that you're saved and you get to spend eternity with Jesus, is that enough for you? John Piper puts it like this in his book, God and the Gospel. The critical question for our generation and every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and all your friends that you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures that you've ever tasted and no human conflict or natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Because sometimes I wonder if maybe I could. And that should worry us. I mean, think about how so many Christians view heaven. What do we always talk about when we talk about heaven? No more pain, no more tears. Who are we thinking about? Thinking about ourselves. We're not thinking about the, the countless hours that we'll be able to bring God glory. We're, we're thinking about what we get. The treasure that we wish we had if we were there. We get this idea that we'll live in mansions. And that's not what the Bible says. In, in the King James Version, it, it says mansions. It, it says it in this verse, uh, John fourteen two. In my father's house... There are many rooms. You may have heard that verse before. In King James, it says, in my father's house, there are many mansions. But in the NIV, it says, in my father's house, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Now, in King James, it says, in my father's house, there are many mansions, but Better translated, it's in my father's house or my father's house is very big and it has many places to abide. See, we look at it and we think about mansions because we're thinking about treasure that we wanna have here. So we talk about how when we get to heaven, we get to have the treasure that we wanna have here and we get to have a mansion. But see, in Jesus' day, you just moved in with your father and your father built an extra room on the house for you. When you were gonna get married in Jesus' day, you would propose and then you would go back to your father's house and start building the wing on the father's house for you and your bride to live in. And then when you thought you were done with the wing on your father's house for you to move in with your dad, you would go back to your fiance's father and say, okay, I think I'm done. And you would bring him, the father-in-law, over to, his, uh, over to your wing of the house and say, okay, what do you think? If the father-in-law said, yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll do then you could go and marry his daughter. If you brought the father-in-law over and he's like, eh, not quite good enough. Then it was back to the drawing board, back to building a little bit more and you would come back when it was done. Jesus is saying, in the, in the culture that Jesus is speaking to, it makes a whole lot more sense for Jesus to say, look, my father's house, it is very big. I'm going to go and Jesus is speaking to who? The bride of Christ, right? He's speaking to the church. He's saying, I'm going to my father's house. I'm going to build a room for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. There is room for you and for you and for you and for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going to go to prepare a place for you and I will come back again as the bridegroom to come and bring you to my Father's house. We don't get to live in our own mansion. We get to live in a big, giant house together with our Father and our family. Guess what? Someday we're all going to be living together in a big house. You can sing the song if you want. It's just funny, it's it's a very American thing that so many of us believe that we go to heaven and we get rich, that we get to live in mansions. And the more work that we do for God, the more rich and the bigger mansion we get when we get to heaven. And Peter says, no, you get something better than that. You get salvation. But you see what I mean? So many people we want all these extra treasures, all this extra stuff for being a Christian. And Peter says the treasure you get, your inheritance from your father, is salvation. That's what you're guaranteed. And you remember who, who he's talking to. We, we talked about this last week, that Peter is writing to Christians that have been displaced, that have been pushed out, that are refugees now because they're they're hiding and running from persecution in the church because Rome doesn't like them, Jews don't like them, and a lot of times their families don't like them because they've converted to Christianity. Peter's writing to people who have lost everything because they're Christians. Try telling the persecuted church that they'll get health, wealth, and an easier life for following Jesus. Peter is telling them, look, salvation might be the only treasure and only comfort you have, but that's enough. You You, don't have to, you, you are going to have to go through trials. You're going to have to go through hard times. People aren't going to like you. People are going to hate you because you're a Christian. But, but, but you get salvation. You get to spend eternity with Jesus. You get to be in your father's house. The world around you may have taken everything from you, and the world around you can take everything from you, but there's one thing that they can't take because it's being kept in heaven for you. They can't take salvation, and trust me, it's enough. In verse four, an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. And then he says in verse six, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you might have to endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. He's talking about treasure there, and he's like, gold? Like, eh. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him, though you've never seen him. Though you don't see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious and expressible joy even though you're going through these trials. The reward for trusting him, here it is again, will be the salvation of your souls. He says, look, you'll struggle. It's gonna happen. But don't let your struggle steal your joy. Because the world can take a lot from you, but they can't steal your salvation, so don't let them steal your joy. That that struggle, that's how our faith is purified. That's how our faith grows stronger. If our faith in God fails when we go through trials, then maybe our faith wasn't really in God. If if our faith fails when trials come, then maybe we've been putting our faith in God other things, other treasures. We, we've been putting our faith in, in finances to save us or or, or friends to save us or, or even the church to save us. But even the church is full of broken people. He, he's saying, if you have your faith in God and in the salvation that he gives, you can live with un- expressible joy because that can't be stolen. Showing that you're still trusting in human stuff means that you're not finding joy in the fact that Jesus saved you. The joy of the Lord is my salvation. He says, your faith is being tested as fire purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. Gold is like, it's just gold in comparison to the inexpressible worth of salvation in Jesus. And what does purified faith look like? Well, he talks about it in verse eight and nine. You love him though you've never seen him, though you don't see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with inexpressible joy, the reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. He goes on to say in verse 10, this salvation was something that even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterwards. They were told that their messages were were not for themselves but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It's all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. So, so think clearly and exercise self-control, which is kind of a funny thing for him to say, of all people, but he's been growing, he's been learning. He says, so think clearly, exercise self-control, look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. This salvation, this treasure, he he says, this is what all the prophets in the Old Testament have have been longing to see. This is the treasure that they've been thinking about for hundreds and thousands of years, have been watching and waiting and wondering, what, what is it, what is it that we're talking about? How does this all play out? He says, even the angels are sitting on the edge of their seat, are excited to see, oh my goodness, this is what salvation is like. He says, it's all so wonderful that the the angels are eagerly watching. So why is salvation not a big deal to us? Why why do we say, oh, salvation, yeah, that's, uh, that's... and just kind of glaze over it so often. And Peter's saying, no, all of human history, both in the spiritual realm and on this realm, all of history has been waiting to see salvation, has been waiting for salvation to happen. And yet so often we can just sit in our chairs on Sunday morning and sing worship songs And just kind of sing it like it was any other song. When we worship on Sunday morning, are are we worshiping with the same kind of expectation that the angels are looking for? looking at have been looking forward to with salvation are we we singing with as much joy as all of the prophets in, in the history of the world have would be worshiping if they were able to be here and experience the salvation that that we have the ability to be a part of and receive so freely Could it be that Jesus was right, that our treasure, our heart, is somewhere else? Jesus said in Matthew 13, 44, that the kingdom of heaven is like, what? A a treasure in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. Why does that sound familiar? Though you don't see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy for the reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. See it? The more you hang around with Jesus, the more you sound like Jesus and the more his spirit speaks through you. Is salvation so valuable to you that you would give up everything Everything for it. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What do I have to do to get salvation? Jesus told him if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions. Sell it all. Give up everything for it. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. But it says, when the young man heard this, he went away very sad, for he had many possessions. I ask again, what do you treasure? Are you willing to go all in on Jesus and salvation? Do you, do you treasure many money and possessions like that guy? Jesus said, sell it all. It's worth it. Buy the field. Salvation is worth more than possessions. Salvation is worth more than mere gold. Do you treasure family and friends? Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone by comparison. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. You're not worthy of me. He he said, "Salvation it's worth it's worth even losing family over." And Peter's telling this to people who have lost family for the gospel. Do you treasure comfort and stability? Jesus said in Matthew nine fifty eight through sixty two, foxes have dens and. Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He says, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, Money and possessions sell it all. Salvation is the treasure in the field, it's worth it. Family and friends he says if you want to be my disciple you have to hate everybody else in comparison because salvation is worth it he he says you treasure comfort and stability he he said it, he said don't worry about it he he said salvation is worth it and peter is writing this letter to people who have found these things out firsthand because they've given up money and possessions, they've given up family and friends, and they've given up comfort and stability for the sake of knowing Jesus. And he's saying, yes, you have to give all that up. Yes, you're facing trials and losing all of those things, but you have inexpressible joy. And God's gonna hold that salvation for you in a place where you can't, It can't be stolen or taken from you. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. And that's what Peter did. In Matthew 19, 27, it says, Peter said to Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. All he had, Peter had found a treasure in a field and he sold everything to buy it. In Luke 5, 10, and 11, same story we read earlier, just different gospel. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. Verse 11 says, so they pulled their boats up on shore and they left everything and followed him. When Peter said to Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you, he wasn't making light of it. That's what he did. You know, a lot of times we talk about Peter getting out of the boat. And when we talk about that, we're usually talking about Peter getting out of the boat to walk on water to Jesus. But honestly, it's Peter getting out of the boat in this story that's more important. It's Peter getting out of the boat to leave all of those things behind. If he hadn't done that, he would never have been in the boat to get out of the boat to walk on water. It was when he left everything behind to follow Jesus that Peter's story really began. It might just be harder to leave your nets than it is to walk on water. I mean when Peter got out of the boat to walk on water if he'd lost his life according to what Peter said doesn't matter because He has the treasure of salvation. And he'd given everything else up already. But so many times for us, it's leaving the nets, leaving the boat to follow Jesus that's so much harder. I wonder if we were to leave everything behind to follow Jesus, would we be the people on which God would build his church like he was talking about to Peter. Not not the corporate machine that we've made, but the real, true, biblical church. Would we become the people who would get out of the boat and walk in dangerous places for Jesus? Would we be the people who see Jesus in his glory and hear the voice of god like peter did on the mount of transfiguration i wonder if like peter it's only when we begin to leave everything behind to follow jesus that our real story begins matthew 4:19 and 20 jesus called out to them come follow me and i will show you how to fish for people and they left their nets at once And followed him. Jesus is calling to you today. Come, follow me, and I'll show you how to fish for people. Will you leave your nets today? What are your nets? What's your boat look like? What are the things that will keep you caught in the nets of earthly treasure? Is it stability? The job that you have? Is it family? Your your kids? Your mom? Your dad? Is it your schedule? Is it being religious without really... Knowing Jesus? Is it money and having nice things? Is salvation enough? Is Jesus enough? What is it that you treasure? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray.